0: Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. Acts chapter 17, it's been a couple weeks since we've been here. As you are turning there tomorrow night here at the church is Power Hour, from 7.30 to 8.30 prayer. And then Friday is game night in the back starting at 7.30. Amen. And uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, today our church participated in providing breakfast, milk, and juice and stuff for all the schools within Mount Carmel and the district office as well, staff. Yeah, not to students. They don't need any sugar on that first day of school. Now, they might tomorrow, but on the first day, they're usually pretty good, ready to go. Amen. But We had over 500 donuts that we got and milk and, uh, and juice and uh, sent a little uh, thank you and appreciative thing that we had to go along with those things. And I thank those teams that went this morning with my wife to take care of that. Appreciate them for getting up early, being at the school that's. Between seven and seven thirty to get those items there. Thank you, church family. You didn't know you did that, but you did. <clears throat> didn't know you did that, but you did. Uh, we just deemed it, thought it maybe necessary. Didn't start in this new year with the transition of how everything happened from last year to now. It's kind of a new norm for everybody to get used to, and just kind of a little hey, we're thinking about you while you're you know transitioning to this new year in a different school, different thing. Amen. Uh, Acts chapter number seventeen. And uh, I'm going to begin with verse number 24 is where we left off at. We're back at good old Bible study. Good old Wednesday night Bible study. Amen. One of the reasons why we do this is because I've read several surveys throughout the years. And I remember one time, one of them that I read that uh, whenever the survey asked the people of those surveyed, 10% of the people thought Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Most people didn't know more than two or three of the commandments. Most of them couldn't name the four gospels. Had no idea what the Beatitudes even were. And couldn't name more than one or two of the 12 apostles. So let me tell you something. That's one of the reasons why we have Bible study. Just one of the reasons why we have Bible study. Acts chapter number 17, verse 24. I'm going to read 10 verses till the end of the chapter. Here this evening, just read it all at once. This is Paul's reply to those Athenians on Mars Hill. He said, God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath. And all things hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth and have determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord if haply they might feel after him and find him though he be not far from every one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as certain also of your own prophets have said for we are also his offspring. For as much then as we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. At the times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained where he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, We will hear thee again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them, albeit certain men clave unto him and believed among them, which was. Dionysus, Dionysus, an era and a woman named Demarius, the others and others with them. Tonight, I simply want to teach this. God is. Just kind of trailing dot dot dot. God. God is. Amen. Tonight. Father, I love you, Jesus, this evening. We once again center our lives around about your word, oh Lord Jesus. And we ask God for your help. Lord, help us, God, in our understanding tonight. I pray, oh Lord God, that your word. God, become alive to someone because it already states that it is a lie. But let it become alive to someone, Lord Jesus, in this place. And we'll thank and appreciate you, God, for the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray. Amen and amen. And the church amen. Amen. You may be seated tonight. And I'll try to be mindful of our time. I know we're back in school and such. And so I'll be mindful of that to the best of my ability. Since it has been a couple weeks since we considered the book of Acts, I think it's important just to review real quickly of where we are here in Acts chapter number 17. Paul has visited or will visit three places within chapter 17. Uh, we've already looked at him visiting Thessalonica and Berea, and we are presently looking at him uh, visiting Athens. When we last left him in our last study, he was in Athens, and he has already been there for a little while, and he has spoke about uh, Christ among the marketplace and He has found himself even speaking to some of the philosophers of Athens. Uh, That Greek world was well known for their philosophy and philosophers and things of that nature. And so now he has trekked to Mars Hill. And uh, while he is there, he's going to address the Athenians on Mars Hill Uh, concerning some of their beliefs or things that they don't believe in. In his process of surveying the area there at Athens, he came across an altar, the Bible says, to uh, the unknown God. And so now uh, he is stating to them that he has seen that. He understands that they have been ignorantly worshiping uh, this, and he is now going to declare unto them this God that is unknown to them. Now just to back up a little bit, two groups of people that he did meet was the Epicureans and the Stoics. I'm going to review very quickly what some of their belief systems were because they will be important for our, our study here tonight. The Epicureans were materialists. They believed that the sum total of life was what was being lived prior to death. They believe all there was to life was what happened prior to death, that death was the finality of life. There was nothing beyond the grave, and they believe that everything that happened, uh, the world that they lived in, the universe that they experienced, everything that happened, all of that happened by mere chance. They leaned toward uh, atheism. They leaned toward atheism, and their goal was this. They wanted to, to, to find pleasure, and they felt like the best way to find that pleasure was most of all if they could just minimize any type of pain, even go without pain at all. Uh, in their life, they did not believe in any supernatural being, any supernatural being that should be feared or that should be obeyed. And they they sometimes entertained the idea that if there was such a supernatural being out there, it was probably so distant from them that it would by no means have the ability to interfere with the lives of mankind. That was the Epicureans. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were the self-sufficient group. Uh, You couldn't add anything to them. They were self-sufficient. They had it all together. They believed that God was in everything. God's in that pew. God's in that carpet. God's in that drywall. You know, God's in that light over there. They believed that God was in everything. Uh, They were probably best described as a pantheist, believing that God is just in all things. Amen. Their their personal goal was, though, to somehow bring themselves in harmony with the universe because if they thought they could bring themselves in harmony with the tree and the mountain and the dirt, they would therefore be bringing themselves in harmony with God since God is in all of these things. And so Paul is talking to these people, and something uh, not to be overstated, but these are very intellectual people very smart. They're very intelligent. They're the type of people that sit around and just ask questions for the purpose of learning and asking questions. And so whenever they, in their admission to an altar, they built, labeled it to an unknown God. It showed the extent of their intelligence. And Paul says, I'm going to start where you are admitting that there's something you don't know. There is a God that you are not aware of. And so Paul, for the next several verses, takes it upon himself, his responsibility to educate them about God. Amen about God. And so many of the things that Paul is going to address uh, to them concerning his God, the God of the universe, it's going to then confront a lot of their beliefs, it's going to confront a lot of their ideas about life and about the universe. And so whenever Paul begins in verse number 24, Paul begins really where the Bible has begun. Paul begins where the Bible has begun. If you remember in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, what? God created the heaven and the earth. And so Paul begins where the Bible begins. He begins with God. He spoke to them and said, God that made the world and all things there." In there, I mean within that small phrase he is already unrolling the carpet of understanding for those people because we know he says God that made in other words God he said is not made he is the maker God then is not the created he is the creator God is not then the one being fashioned he is the one doing the fashioning and so he, he's already, from the word go, he's not, he's, try, he's not trying to validate the existence of God per se. Amen, but he just starts out of, the, out of the, the, the gate with this idea and the concept of there being a God. Psalms 19 and verse number 1, the psalmist says this, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament sheweth his Handiwork. Amen. Again, it's telling us that everything that we experience in this life, all of creation, the universe, the eclipse that's going to happen on Monday that's going to pass over and we're going to be in darkness for a little bit. Everybody's going crazy about. All of that is nothing more but creation screaming to us that there is a God. I look at it like this. Creation has a show and tell time. Creation has a show-and-tell time because creation is declaring and creation is showing that there is a God. There is a God. Amen. Someone say amen. And so if people have, if people have a wrong concept about God, Or no concept about God at all. uh, Everything else in this life is going to fail quite miserably. Amen. As it did with the belief systems of the Epicureans and the Stoics. Whenever you don't have your concept about God right. When people don't have a settled concept about God. It will affect the other avenues of their religious beliefs. Uh Uh-huh. Because everything that we believe is centered around the concept of a one God. Amen. If you don't have the concept of God right, your salvation will be wrong. You don't have the concept of your God right, you'll get your baptism wrong. If you don't get the concept of God right, it'll affect every other area of your belief system. And so Paul, he wanted the Epicureans to know, he wanted them to know that what they believed to be everything that happened, that they could see, touch, feel, and everything, the universe, all of this, that everything that they say happened by chance actually happened by design divine design he wanted the stoics to understand that god was not dirt and god was not a cloud and god was not a mountain but god created all things in the world see the stoics misunderstood the testimony of creation. That dirt, that cloud, that mountain, all of that was declaring and showing that there was a God. They misunderstood the testimony of creation of there being a creator for the creator itself. Creation was just simply saying there is a God. Not that I'm God and the dirt's God and the mountain's God and the cloud is God. No, no, no. But see, here's the difficulty because it's impossible. I can see why they kind of got snapped into that. It's impossible not to see God in creation. Because his fingerprints are all over the mountains. His fingerprints are all over the clouds. His fingerprints are all over the dirt. All that means is that God was involved in that. Not necessarily that God is that. So his fingerprints are upon all these things. Romans 1 and verse 20. We've read these already before in the book of Acts. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things which are made even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened in other words And we said it, and I'm going to just keep hitting the nail. Creation is proof in and of itself that there is a God. We don't have to have a 55 lesson talking about uh, uh, the, 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 the theories of creation and debacle against evolution to prove that there's a God. Christ, in his word, he's saying creation itself is declaring their God. And he's basically saying this. If there comes a day that someone is going to refute and say, no, there isn't a God. There is no such thing. He says they're going to be accountable for what they could see with their eye. Experience in the realm in which they live. Because it's crying, it's declaring, and it's showing that there is a God. Amen. And so here is Paul, though. He lives during a time. When people believe there's gods of rivers and there's a different God over here of fire and there's another God over here of whatever, you know, wind, God of this, God of that. And so he then stands up and declares to them that there was one God that's ascribed to all of these things. You say it's a God of fire and the God of fire can't operate in the God of the river and the God of the river can't operate in the God of the wind. He said, I'm telling you, there's one God and he operates in all of them. He showed up in the fire. He's calmed the wind. He's walked on the sea. He's he's been in all of them. The Bible says this, Isaiah 40, verse 12. Look at these ponderings, these questions in Isaiah. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heaven with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure? and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. The answer is God. Verse 13, who have directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, have taught him? The answer is no one. Verse 14, with whom took he counsel? Who instructed him and taught him in the path of judgment and taught him knowledge and shewed to him the way of understanding? The answer, again, is no one. Verse 15, behold, the nations are as a drop of... Of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the aisles as a very little thing. Being then that God made all things. Paul goes to his next point. If he made all things, then he is Lord. Over all things. If he created it, he's the master of it. If He created it. He's the Lord of it. And so. Again, coming against these concepts of these two groups, the Epicureans then. Then Epicureans, there is a supernatural being that needs to be obeyed. Because there's a creator that created everything you saw. And since you have seen all these things, he is master of them. He is Lord of them. So there is something that needs to... He said those leaves and those branches, all that move like they move because... They're under the obedience to their master. That water goes out and comes in in the evening at the ocean. Yeah, I know there's the pull of all the moon, but he put the moon. See, all of that really goes back to its creator. That bird tweets rather than barks. Huh? The bird tweets rather than barks because there is one that is in obedience to. Hey, man, as a matter of fact, the Bible says in Psalms 90 and verse number two, it says before the mountains were brought forth or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, it says thou art God. In other words, everlasting, that word means always or perpetual or vanishing point. In other words, from always to always, thou art God. From perpetual to perpetual, thou art God. From vanishing point to vanishing point, thou art God. In other words, when everything else had a beginning, God existed before that. And when everything else will have its ending, he will still be existing beyond that. Amen. He's the Lord. He's the master. He is God. The Bible says in the Romans 11 and verse 36, i just run through these real quick. For of him, it's speaking of God, and through him. And to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It says for of him. They came from him and through or by him they happen and to him. All things consist of God. He is the author. He is the originator of all things. And what does the Bible tells us in Hebrews 11? He that cometh to God must what? Believe that he is. And that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So Paul says, we got to establish something here because these folks won't come to him unless they believe that God is. (laughs) Unless they believe that God is. Now I've mentioned in times gone by how idols, the idols that were made, I've even mentioned just the past few weeks actually that they, they, they put little holes in the back of them because they believe whenever they made their sacrifices and such to the idols that the spirit would come and inhabit that idol while they were doing their sacrificing and their worship had these little holes in the back of them. Those worshipers believed the spirit of whatever God they were worshiping would come and inhabit that during that worship session. But Paul declares to these very intellectual people, he declares them. He said, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Let me break that a little bit more. God does not dwell in idols. Because what they were basically calling that idol was a temple that God would inhabit that area. Uh Whenever they had their worship service. He said, God does not dwell in temples or idols made with hands, implying human hands. In other words, your idols are useless. Because God does not indwell something made by the hands of man. Someone say amen. But my Bible says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, know ye not, he's speaking to the Corinthian church, know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. <laughs> because you, God, not man, made that temple. Huh? God, not man, made that temple. This temple right here is the same temple that was patterned after the first temple in the book of Genesis called Adam, who where God with his own hands, so to speak, went down into the dust of the earth and created a man in his own image. After the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. Amen. God made his own temple back in Genesis and perpetuated it through the womb of a woman Still today, we as individuals today, we are created what the Psalms 139 talk about. Him forming us, how wonderfully made we are. That's by the hands of God in our mother's womb. That's not the hand of man that made you. It is the hand of God. And so God has no problem indwelling your body with the spirit and the power of the Holy Ghost because it's a temple not made by man but by God. Amen. Amen. And we say, well, we have the church. We feel God in here. i tell you why. Because of all you individual temples that have been handmade, hand-fashioned, the workmanship of God get into this place. And we experience the power and the glory of God that resides in the temple of each and every one of you. Amen. Man is a temple created by the hands of God. And God's not dwelling in temples made by hands of men. But he'll create, he'll, he'll dwell in a temple that he's made with his own hands. Amen. Hallelujah. Furthermore, page turned on. me. Furthermore, it says in verse 25. That this God Paul is speaking of. Neither, not only does he not dwell in temples made by the hands of men, but neither is he worshipped with men's hands. As though he needs anything. We got we to gotta think about something real, real carefully here tonight. God, he asks for our worship. He demands praise through his scriptures. There's a lot of things that he requires. But God doesn't need us. He desires us. He wants us. But he doesn't necessarily need us. He said in Psalms 50, he said, If I was hungry, I would not even tell you. That's what he said. He said, Because you would bring me a bullock or a lamb, something that belonged to me to begin with. He said, There's nothing you bring into me that isn't already mine. He said, So, so, I, 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 it's not, it's not a, 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 a concept of need, it's a concept of what he desires. Yeah. He he wants us to pray, and I guarantee you, God doesn't need us to pray to him, but he knows that we're better off if we're doing some praying. Amen. And so we're we're poorly mistaken if we think we're going to just hold an anvil over God and say, God, if, if, if you don't meet my mandate, I just won't worship anymore. I withhold my offerings. Does unfathomable riches mean anything to you? Does that mean anything to you? So we we can't hold that over God's head as though, you know what? I'm just going to just withdraw this. It's not that he needs it. He just desires. It's the difference for you between wanting something and needing it. You can survive without your wants, but you can't without your needs. Well, here's the thing. God doesn't need anything. amen and so so god god is 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 not needy god's a giver god's a giver he made he made the flesh of jesus in the womb of a woman simply for the purpose of giving that flesh sacrificing it on a tree and the life and the blood of it for the ransom of all of us he's a giver He gave us what the Bible says, his only begotten Son. So, since that is the case, then our God is self sufficient. He's self sufficient. And yet, Paul says he giveth to all life. Everybody say all. To all life, breath, and all things. So, Stoics, I know you think you got this thing all wrapped up in a handbag that you're self sufficient. Sorry, God has need of nothing. He doesn't have need of anything. He is self-sufficient. And that breath you're breathing right now, that came from God. Yeah. That, 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 that came from God. Amen. And so you're not, you're not self-sufficient because all he'd have to do is retract that breath that he gave you when you were born. And you'd kind of be like dead right now. I mean, I know that's as simple, that's as, as simply complex and as complexly simple I can state it. It's just like that. And so he, he says, neither is he worship with men's hands. Now, it's interesting that word worship there is is thera- uh, therapeutic, which is where we get our word therapeutic. All right. But in the Greek it means this, it's to wait upon meanly or especially to relieve of disease, cure, or heal. God doesn't need anybody to wait upon him as though he is ill and sick and needs tended to. As simple as possible, God's not sick. And he's not weak or feeble either. God doesn't need anybody waiting on him him now the Athenians being they're smart like they are great philosophers and they can ask questions and spend a whole day not really get anything accomplished but you know they did a lot of pondering they thought of themselves a whole lot better than other Greeks and Gentiles that were in their area because of their intelligence they're smart they're educated many other Greeks they would call barbarians because they're so educated you know, they're a step and a cut above all the rest. And yet, Paul addresses this in such a way that in verse number 26, he tells them that basically there is just one mankind. He tells them, verse 26, and hath made, speaking of that God he's talking about, and hath made of one blood all nations of men. For to for to dwell on the face of the earth and have determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. So Paul addresses this by telling these people that think they're smarter than everybody else, better than everybody else, telling them, hey, you are all of mankind. All nations are of one blood. Basically, and it all started with God. There was God and then God created Adam and then God pulled Eve out of Adam. Amen." And they had the first family. And from the first family, there's this 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 replenishing and this multiplying, which caused other families and the ripples in the water and the branches just keep the finger out, finger out. So from there, that point of origin of Adam and Eve from God, all known humanity. Uh, if we could sit down and they had a program good enough, but they don't to trace our family heritage, we'd be able to trace it all the way back to the roots of Adam and Eve. The Asians would be able to trace it there. The, the black people would be able to trace it there. The Hispanics would be able to trace it there. If we had trace it back far enough, all of us got the same mom and dad. He said all nations, all mankind are made of one blood. Malachi 2 and 10 said it like this. The question is posed. Have we not all one father? Have not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our fathers? He said, there's one father, one God has created us. I think this falls quite, quite well in the wake of of the Charlottesville, Virginia things that have taken place. We all have been made of one blood and we have one father and one God and the only race. You may have heard it before, but let me say it again. The only race in God's book is the human race. The only race in God's book is the human race. God does not have a particular race, nationality, color, ethnicity, none of that. The criteria he sets here is that they should seek him didn't say you have to be black, you have to be white, you have to be Asian, you have to be Hispanic, that your mother tongue needs to be pig Latin. No, 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 no. The only criteria that he gives, look at it now, look at it. He says he has all this. This is all one blood. My paper went again. All one blood, all of the the same nation. He's determined their times before appointed the bounds of their habitation. Why did he do all this? That's verse number 27. Why did he do all this? That they should seek him. That's it. That's it. He has all these stations as is so that they might seek the Lord. Someone say, Amen. Now, look, look, look back at verse number 26. He's determined the times before appointed of all of all nations, of all mankind that are all of one blood. He's determined God has determined the circumstances of mankind. Individually, he has determined your circumstances. Yeah, he's determined your circumstances. And look at it and the placement of mankind where you are in the world right now, where you are, location placement right now. He's determined the circumstances of mankind and determined his placement of mankind so that why so that they should seek the Lord. Let me state a little bit more. God's bringing circumstances into mankind at the exact place where they are so that they will turn to him. Does that make sense? So he's done that so that they might seek God. So here is the light bulb. To not seek out God then is to deny the very purpose for your status and your placement. No, no. See, some people ain't getting it. Circumstances are happening. They're in a certain locality and circumstances are happening. That's happening because God wants them to turn to him and seek him out. And to seek every other venue out except God is you're missing the point behind your circumstances and your placement. Whether you're black, yellow, red, doesn't matter. Said you're missing the point for him bringing these very things into your life. So God places men, places men where they are. He has certain things happen to them so that they will seek after him so that they will feel after him. So that if happily they might find him, because the Bible then says he is not far from every one of us. Asian people, Chinese people, Japanese people, he is not far from every one of us. And if that's the case, then seeking should not be difficult since God is not far from every one of us. Now, look, this is their time. See? Idols. Idols. In reality, for them, was a means to have their gods near. Wood, stone, gold, silver. God. God near to me. You know, put it in my home. God. It was a way that they could have God near. But Paul's stating, you all have done all this contriving, this whittling, this, this craftsman work. To get your God near to you, if you'd only understand that God is near. Anyway. God is near anyway. He isn't far. Now here, remember, the Epicureans, they said if there was some supernatural being, he would probably be so distant and so far away, he wouldn't interfere with the affairs of men. That's what Paul's whittling at right here. He says he's not far. He's not far from every one of us. In other words, Paul's saying that God exists, Epicureans, and he's close enough to be discovered. He exists, and he's close enough to be discovered. As a matter of fact, he has arranged your life so that you might seek him out and have a divine encounter. Amen. The Bible says Psalms 139 and verse 7. Whether shall I go from thy spirit or whether shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. What's the psalmist saying? He's saying, wherever I go, he said, there's God. Anywhere I go, there's God. I'm constantly finding him in the morning and the evening out at the sea. It does not matter. God is there. God is near. So please don't ever accept the the voice that comes in your ear and say, well, God's just far from you. That's a lie. We have biblical fact that God is near. Amen. He's near. Now, many of these cities, many of these cities in the Greek, uh, these Greek cities, many of these Greek cities uh, had what was called an acropolis. It just meant a high city. That's what it basically means, a high city. It's a high city, a high portion in the city. Uh, Many times that's where they would put their altars or that's where they would put some of their, their idols on this elevated high spot. Because many thought if they could just get closer to their God or their gods, they could do so upon these high elevated areas. That's the reason why throughout the Old Testament, you're constantly reading of pagan worship taking place in the high places. You know, they had the high places here because they thought maybe we could just get close to God if we could get to one of these high places. Yet again, folks, God, the God of the universe, the creator, the originator of all these things. He's not far from every one of us. You don't have to climb a mountain to get any closer to God than where we are right here. Amen. You don't have to do that. God is close. Now, here's the thing. I considered here this afternoon. Felt like God just pricked my heart with it. That a person then who has not found God. That didn't happen. Them not finding God. That didn't happen because God wasn't near. It didn't happen because of that. Because we know he's near. Well, I feel the Lord laid on my heart. If a person has not found God. Whenever he's stationed circumstances and placement. So that they might seek him. If they've not found him. It's probably because. Their discovery does not align with their concept of who they thought he was. In other words, they found something that they're not willing to accept. The reality of who he is may be going against the very perceived notion they had about God. See, because what we have with the Epicureans and the Stoics, they already got a preconceived idea about what God is, who God is. If they would ever come across God, they would have to do one of two things. They'd either have to just disband all their preconceived notions and accept God for who he is. Or they would have to cater to what they thought God was and refuse who he is. I know that was a lot of wada wada, but that's really what it comes down to. Because what I think today is there's been more people exposed to God than what we would tend to believe have been exposed to God. There's been people because of circumstances and placement, they have sought out God. But when they found him, that wasn't the God they wanted. That was a God that was different than the God that they were expecting. And something that kind of hurts that today is because we got people propagating stuff behind pulpits, giving people a false image of who God is. Well, there's pastors and teachers with all types of propaganda, and they're given a false image of who God is. And whenever people come in contact with who God really is, they're saying, well, my pastor said he's just a God of love and grace, and I can sin and everything be okay. And they're not willing to accept God for who he is because they're comfortable with where they're at. But let me tell you what your loving God will do. Your loving God will challenge where you are to, in order to get you to where you need to be. God is. Amen. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? Let me put it like this. If you had never met Brother Mason. But I gave you description of his height, hair color, eye color, all such. To go meet him at a location or a place. And if I did a poor job of my description. You could be rubbing shoulders with him and never even know it. And come back and tell me. I never found the man. But it wasn't that you never came in contact with the man. But you were just going off of a bad description you got from me. I tell you what, judgment day is going to be scary for people that's giving God a false image. Because how many people, how many people are going to have missed contact relationship submitting to that power because that was not one that was ever described across a pulpit. Now I'll jump back and forth. I tell you about I'll tell you how he's a God of love, but I'm going to tell you how he's a God of judgment. I'm going to tell you how he's a God of grace and mercy, but I'm going to tell you how he's a God too of order. Yes. That's my God. And to have him any other way would to be have him, having him imbalanced and with a, a, a false persona out here that I would just dupe you all into believing. Verse number 28. Speaking of this God. For in him we live and move and have our being, as certain also of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Paul does something very, you talk about being smart. They thought they were smart. Well, Paul was new, I'm telling you right now. He wasn't a dull crown in the box. He did something very smart here. Remember, whenever Paul talked to the Jews, he talked to them about their history. Remember, because they liked that. Talked to them about scriptures because they were aware of, they were familiar with that. When he talks to these Greeks, of course, he's talking to them about creation, something that they would be familiar with as well, the universe around them. But then he goes a step further. He uses something that their own prophets said. Paul wasn't endorsing everything that these prophets said by using these two statements. He was simply finding a line of connection of something that that was their prophets. And he was using a part of where their prophets spoke truth and using that to connect his world with their world, trying to introduce them to God, what their prophets have said is in him. We live and move and have our being what their prophets have said. And we also are his offspring. Paul uses said, Your own prophets said that. But look, he uses their prophets words for his benefit. Look at verse 29. He said, for as much then as we are the offspring of God. Huh? He's using their own prophet's words. For as much then we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the Godhead is like to gold, silver, stone, graven by art and man's device. So if we are the offspring, anything you know, if if that animal is the offspring of a rabbit, it probably looks like a rabbit. You know, the tail, the ears, you know. If the offspring of that animal is a horse, you're not going out there looking at a goat. Paul says, if we are God's offspring, then all these images that you're making to resemble God, he said, they got to be far out. This is wood and stone and metal and all that. He said, we're not made of all that. said so we're the offspring of God. It, it can be. This is just this is man's device. Look at verse 30. And he turns a table here, turns a corner. In the times of this ignorance. He said, God has winked at. Everyone say, but now, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So the offspring has similarities to who it came from. Man's not silver, man's not gold, man's not none of this. Paul's reasoning with these thinkers, he's reasoning with them, has been now for quite some time, reason with them, taking little, taking little jabs here and there at what their belief systems were. You know, not just coming out telling them they're wrong, but just uh, one person said like this. It says if, if, if you'll just speak truth, you don't have to debate truth. Because when you speak truth, truth alone debates untruth. You understand what I'm saying? You don't have to tell somebody, bless God, you know, uh, you just don't have to come straight out and be rude. Speak truth. And truth within itself goes to battle for you. Paul said all these things. He didn't say, "Well, by the Epicureans, this is what you are, and this attaches to that." And there's where no, no, no. I've done that for you tonight. But Paul didn't do that. He just spoke truth, and so he's reasoning with these thinkers, which that's what they love to do: reason, talk about it, discuss it. Their problem was application. I love to talk about it. Have someone tell a new thing. Let's think about it. Ponder that in our mind. But Paul now has turned the corner. He's demanding a response. But now God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now see, that goes beyond the realm of talking. That goes to the realm of doing all men everywhere are commanded to repent according to God. And all men, that's pretty inclusive. That just that doesn't leave, you know, too much of the population out. It's pretty inclusive. All men. Here. I want to help somebody out. I read this. I thought it was very good. I wrote it down. I didn't say it. Someone else did. Stephen Cole said this. He says, we cannot reason an intellectual into the kingdom because the heart of his problem is sin, not just wrong thinking. That's very good. That's very good. People will extinguish their breath in debating back and forth about belief systems. Or if you can explain it, if you can explain the existence of God to them, then they'll come to know God. If you could just explain it. Well, you could explain everything in the world and they could understand it all. But if they do nothing about their sin problem. You can't just outsmart somebody into the church. They might have every degree under the book, but you can't just outsmart somebody into the church because there's still something that lies there. It's called sin and sin has to be dealt with. And one of the means and measures which sin is dealt with is through and by repentance. And so the very next verse, look at it. The very next verse tells us my page went again. The very next verse tells us why this command is here, why all men must repent. It tells us why. Verse number 31, it starts out with the word because. Because he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Righteousness. All men need to repent because a day of judgment is coming. All men need to repent because a day of judgment is coming. We need to repent because a day of judgment is coming. It's easy to live in my world and forget sometimes. That even beyond my death, there is a judgment to come. Amen. That there is a judgment to come. And and the word judgment. Look at this with me. Will you just look at this with me? The word judge in the Greek as a verb. Here's what it means. I guess this is why this struck me over the past week when I was studying this because that garbage. I don't judge me. Oh, it makes me want to hurl in the toilet. And I, and that's not something I do that often. Don't judge me. We take it in the, like, Webster definition terms. As someone, you know, calling a verdict over somebody's life. But in the Greek it means this, to divide or to separate. To divide or separate. Don't judge me. You're going to be real upset with rapture day. Because on one side he set the lambs, the sheep, and on the other side he put the goats. What was that? Dividing and separating. You know how you can be protected for judgment day? Let judgment happen while you're living in this life. Because if you'll live separate and divided now, don't judge me. Get along. And he goes on. Verse 31 is very interesting to me. I know it might not be everybody, but it is to me. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. Now, I know that's a mouthful, isn't it? But it's telling us we need to repent. Because there is a judgment day coming when God is going to judge the world by the standard of Jesus Christ, whom He has raised from the dead. Now, here's a big reality for everybody then. You, here's the reason why you can be sure of a day of judgment. Because the standard that He's going to judge the world by, He got up out of the ground. If you believe in the resurrection, then that means you better hands down believe in a judgment because that's what it's saying. You can believe in judgment because He's going to use the man that He pulled up out of the ground to be the standard for judging. And so, if He raised Him out of the ground, there's going to be a judgment. Right. Oh yeah! Now here's what's happening. Everybody all day long filling churches. Praise God He resurrected. Yeah, I got the Holy Spirit. Honey, you better be dancing and thinking about judgment. Because he got up, that means there's going to be judgment. The proof in the pudding that there'll be judgment is because Jesus got up. So if you're willing to accept new life, you better live a life that can be separated and divided in the end of time. Because he's using Jesus Christ as the standard. I'm not measuring myself against Alex. He's not the standard at judgment day. I'm not measuring myself against Sister Sarah. She's not the standard at judgment day. And I don't care how great of a personality or whoever it is. I'm not judging myself against Bishop. Amen. He's not the standard at judgment day. Jesus is the standard. Jesus is the standard at Judgment Day. So I can't say, well, I'm doing good because Brother Terry's at this level and I'm doing a little better than he is. I pray learn he does and all this stuff. I'm doing better because that's Brother Terry. Or you look at somebody else, oh, I'm not doing that great because they're all this and that. Honey, that's not where the, the, the association is made. You need to be making the association with Jesus Christ. He's the standard on Judgment Day. It doesn't matter how you measure to me or how I measure to you or vice versa. It's how we measure to him. So Epicureans, they denied that there was anything beyond the grave, the life that we're living in this one right here, and death is the finality. And that's probably why the responses came as they did whenever Paul starts mentioning the idea and concept of a resurrection. Because if you believe all there is to life is what's being lived right now, there's nothing beyond the grave. That type of mindset, you probably have little hope with the belief in a resurrection. And if you don't believe in a resurrection, you probably don't believe in a judgment. Because the responses were, they learned of all this. You can look at verses 32 through 34, and I'm, I'm landing the plane. They heard about the resurrection. Some mocked. They have been affronted with God is from Paul. Circumstances have been put in this place. Hopefully that they might seek the Lord. But they're mocking. My estimation They've ran into a God that they're not too interested in getting to know. In one that doesn't align with the concept that they had of him. And then there's others that say, hey, I'll hear you again on this matter. You have those that are mock, and then you have those that procrastinate. And there were just a couple others that believed. I think the greatest difficulty of the apostolic church world over and those that attend the church is not that we have mockers or we have believers, but we have procrastinators. They've seen him. They've heard about him. They have all the knowledge about him. But they're not doing anything with it. They believe in a resurrection, but they're just fools to think that they can believe hard enough that there won't be a judgment so I wait. Just preach me another hell fire brimstone sermon. Maybe I'll do something. Oh, my God, coming to the altar, tears flow. Oh, like just from a faucet. But then they go to procrastinating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I, I got more time. I got more time. I'll wait till my kids get out of the house. You go on and do that. Don't judge me. Stay with me. Because people sometimes try to appease their own minds. If I don't accept the resurrection, I don't have to worry about a judgment. But in reality, again, judgment is coming because the judge's standard has already risen from the dead. Christ Jesus, it's coming. God is. So Paul has a lengthy little Bible study with these folks. And you know what the major thing here. Look at this. There's just a few people that believe it. There's a lot of mockers, a lot of procrastinators. He has spent a a lengthy amount of time there going through all this. We don't see some great, you know, first Pentecostal church of Athens was formed. Just a couple believe. But you know what? Record of heaven shows this. Paul, you did what you were supposed to do. Mm -hmm. You did what was required of you to do. You are not required to dictate or determine the results. You're required to do what you're supposed to do. Propagate the message. Set up that divine appointment where people will be having the circumstances and the placement where that they should seek the Lord. Hallelujah. Let's pray here this evening. We'll close this service. God, God is.